Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Save Us, We Pray. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 28, 2021, Palm Sunday. One of the lines I've heard often over the past few weeks is, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I hear my neighbor saying it when I step out to walk my dog. I hear it in grocery stores, at the bank, on the news. After months of COVID-induced fear and isolation, we are finally glimpsing hope as the vaccines roll out, the daily death tolls drop, and the restrictions on our social lives ease up. All of this is wonderful. The other line I've heard, though, is this, I can't bear anymore. As in, I can't bear another COVID variant. I can't bear another vaccine delay. I can't bear another political scandal. I can't bear another mass shooting. As ever, our lives slide from hope to disappointment, disappointment to hope. On the one hand, the light at the end of the tunnel revives and renews us. On the other hand, it shows us just how bleak and dismal the tunnel has been. In other words, it doesn't take us human beings long to go from praise to pain. What a fitting context for Palm Sunday, our entry into Holy Week. Today we begin a journey that holds within it the fullness of the human story the highs, the lows, the hopes, the fears. In the span of seven days, we do it all. We praise, process, break bread, wash feet, make promises, break promises, deny, betray, condemn, abandon, grieve, despair, disbelieve, and celebrate. This week, we see the light at the end of the tunnel, lose our vision of it entirely in the grimness of death, and then find it again, drenched in glory. Like many of you, I grew up celebrating Palm Sunday with loud, festive processions. As a child, I carried palm branches down the central aisle of my church, sang all glory, laud, and honor with my fellow parishioners, and shouted Hosanna at the top of my lungs. I did this without even knowing what the word Hosanna meant. I assumed it meant some churchy version of, you're awesome, or we love you, or rock on, king of the world. It doesn't. In Hebrew, it means something far less cheery. It means, save now. As in, Lord, we're desperate. We're frantic, we're in trouble. Our praise is steeped in need, want, loss, and lack. Hosanna, Jesus. Save us. Save us now. If you resonate with this plea as you come to the end of Lent, may I offer a word of reassurance? It's okay. All of this, all of this authentic hope wrapped in all of this honest fear is okay. It is what Holy Week is about. If the Palm Story Sunday is about anything, it is about dazzling hopes and disappointed expectations. It's a story about what happens when the God we want and think we know doesn't show up, and another God, a less efficient, less aggressive, far less muscular God, shows up instead and saves us in ways we didn't know were possible. Historians tell us that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he asked his disciples to secure a donkey for his journey down the mountain into the holy city. In their compelling book, The Last Week, what the Gospels really teach about Jesus' last days in Jerusalem, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan argue that two processions entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Jesus' was not the only triumphal entry. Every year during Passover, the Jewish festival that swelled Jerusalem's population from its usual 50,000 to at least 200,000. 
the Roman governor of Judea would ride up to Jerusalem from his coastal residence in the west. He would come in all of his imperial majesty to remind the Jewish pilgrims that Rome demanded their complete loyalty, obedience, and submission. The Jewish people could commemorate their ancient victory against Egypt and slavery if they wanted to, but if they tried any real-time resistance, they would be obliterated. As Pilate clanged and crashed his imperial way into Jerusalem from the west, Jesus approached from the east, looking, by contrast, ragtag and absurd. Unlike the Roman emperor and his legions who ruled by force, coercion, and terror, Jesus came, defenseless and weaponless, into his kingship. Riding on a donkey, he all but cried aloud the bottom-line truth that his rule would have nothing to recommend it but love, humility, long-suffering, and sacrifice. If there is a single day in the liturgical calendar that illustrates the dissonance at the heart of our faith, it's Palm Sunday. More than any other, this festive, ominous, and complicated day of palm fronds and hosanna banners warns us that paradoxes we might not like or want are woven right into the fabric of Christianity. God on a donkey, dying to live, a suffering king, good Friday. These paradoxes are what give Jesus' story its shape, weight, and texture, calling us at every moment to hold together truths that seem bizarre, counterintuitive, and irreconcilable. On good days, I understand that these paradoxes are precisely what grant my religion its credibility. If I live in a world that's full of pain, mystery, and contradiction, then I need a religion robust enough to bear the weight of that messy world. I need a religion that empowers me, in Richard Rohr's beautiful words, to live in exquisite, terrible humility before reality. But the question is, will I choose the humble and the real, or will I insist on the delusions of empire? Will I accompany Jesus on his ridiculous donkey, honoring the precarious path he has chosen, or will my impatience and pessimism undermine my journey? In reference to Palm Sunday, Frederick Buechner writes this, Despair and Hope. They travel the road to Jerusalem together, as together they travel every road we take. Despair at what in our madness we are bringing down on our own heads, and hope in him who travels the road with us and for us, and who is the only one of us all who is not mad. Pigner is right. We are mad with despair and hope both, so much so that we don't know what to do with the story of a God who comes to die so that we can live. In the end, my solace is this, I am known and held by a God who is too big for thin, one-dimensional truths, even my own most cherished one-dimensional truths. I am held by a God who sticks with me even when I won't stick with God. A God who accepts my worship even when it is mingy, half-baked, and selfish. A God who knows all the reasons my heart cries, save now, and carries those broken, strangled cries to the cross on my behalf. Welcome to Holy Week. Here we are, and here is our God. Here are our hosannas, broken and earnest, hopeful and hungry. Here is all that is unbearable, and all that promises to end in light brighter than we can imagine. Blessed is the one who comes to die, so that we will live. For books this week, Dan reviews The Comanche Empire by Pekka Hamalainen. I read this book after a Stanford University professor told me that it radically altered how he viewed the history of America's Indians. You'll never think about Indian history in the same way, he said. Just about everyone who has read Comanche Empire agrees with that verdict. Pekka Hamalain's book is a classic example of revisionist history. 
It has won over a dozen awards it be translated into French and Spanish for how it recovers a lost story and questions fundamental assumptions about America's indigenous tribes and their relationship to the colonial empires. In what one scholar called the cameo theory of history, American indigenous peoples are a sort of blip on the graph of the story. They make dramatic entrances, stay briefly on the stage, and then fade out as the main saga of European expansion resumes. In his book 1491, Charles Mann similarly describes this popular, powerful, and misleading stereotype that Columbus discovered a sort of timeless and unspoiled Eden, and a people who lived, as it were, outside of history. In this view, the Indians were suspended in time, touching nothing and untouched themselves like ghostly presences on the landscape. Like Mann, Hamelainen categorically rejects the various caricatures of American Indians, that they lacked agency, that they were barbaric savages of a primitive and pathological violence, tragic victims of European colonialism, or bit players on the stage of history. Far from it. His book is about an American empire that, according to conventional histories, did not exist. It tells a familiar tale of expansion, resistance, conquest, and loss, but with the reversal of usual historical roles. It is a story in which Indians expand, dictate, and prosper, and European colonists resist, retreat, and struggle to revive. In meticulous detail, Hamelainen documents how, from about 1700 until 1875, the Comanche Empire rose to dominate the violently contested lands of the American Southwest, the southern Great Plains, and northern Mexico. The Comanches accomplished this dramatic reversal through a creative blending of violence, diplomacy, extortion, trade, and kinship politics. Indeed, they imposed their will on neighboring polities, harnessed the economic potential of other societies for their own use, and persuaded their rivals to adopt and accept their customs and norms. They were nothing less than the dominant people of that particular time and place, an empire in its own right. Since 2012, the Finnish historian Pekka Hamelainen has been the Rhodes Professor of American History at the University of Oxford. For films this week, Dan reviews Dolly Parton, Here I Am. A few days after I watched this documentary about Dolly Parton, she appeared on Stephen Colbert's Late Show and sang an impromptu old song that brought Colbert to tears. Parton was talking about how her love of music grew out of her mother's old folk tunes, one of which was called Bury Me Beneath the Willow, a tune about a girl who was jilted by her boyfriend and decided to kill herself. After she finished the second verse, she kidded Colbert. Ah, oh, are you crying? Then instead of stopping, she sang some more. When she finally finished, Parton said, So I better hush before you cry yourself to death and you can't finish the show. Colbert, still wiping his eyes and trying to laugh, said in return, Like a lot of Americans, I'm under a lot of stress right now, Dolly. You got under my tripwire right there. That was pretty beautiful. My wife and I love this Netflix movie about the prolific 3,000 songs written, inimitable, savvy, and always quotable Dolly. Quote, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. There were some notable omissions, namely her vibrant Christian faith and her relationship with Kenny Rogers, made famous by the duet Islands in the Sea. The film also skirted along the surface, but that's who Dolly is. Very er early on, she carefully crafted a professional persona, and not even her closest friends know the person underneath. Case in point, it appears that no one has ever seen her without her trademark wig and makeup. But Dolly's one-liner response to this? I know I look totally bizarre and artificial, but I'm totally real inside. And lastly, for poetry, Palm Sunday by Malcolm Guit. 
Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes. But will I welcome him? O crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge. The reversal he is bringing changes their tune. I know what lies behind the surface, flourish that so quickly fades, self-interest and fearful guardedness. The hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come break my resistance and make me your home. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 28th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.